pray. Father, may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, after two presidential debates and one vice presidential debate, are you all ready to cast your vote? Or, better yet, as a Christ follower, are you ready to cast your vote? Or are you like so many people that I've run across in my life, people who absolutely, positively know what they think and believe, but absolutely, positively don't know what the Bible has to say about it? Hopefully that is not you when you walk into the voters' booth in a couple of weeks. On your message outline, you'll see a number of questions. Your thought about these questions and your response to them as biblical Christ followers. For example, what position should a Christian take on gun control? How about prayer in school? Where should we stand as Christ followers? What is the role, biblically speaking, that the government ought to take in taking care of the poor? You ever thought about that? What does the Bible say about it? What is the theologically correct amount of taxes people ought to pay? What about capital punishment, the Equal Rights Amendment, the affirmative action choice? What about all of the life issues that lay before us? Abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research. What is our stance as Christians? Bible-believing Christ followers. Should there be a constitutional amendment banning the burning of flags or to preserve marriages as only male and female unions? What is the Christian's response to the war in Iraq? And we might ask, what should be the Christian's response to the cur current economic crisis in America? Have you ever given any thought to what the Bible might actually say about those issues? Now, surprisingly and sometimes frighteningly, the answer is no, I haven't really thought about it. I'm not sure how a person can actually go into a voting booth and vote without considering that. And considering the stance that a particular candidate may or may not have on those issues. But underlying all of those questions that I just started with, I think it's a bigger question. The question is, how should Christians relate to their government? And to answer this, I'm going to direct you to Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, Paul gives us some extraordinary advice about being good Christian citizens. And I'm going to start with verse 1. And in verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities. I've got to tell you that this is a pretty radical shift because historically the children of Israel thought of themselves as a nation with their own form of government, their own land. But now Paul says it is no longer your goal or the goal of God's people to have their own independent state. Instead, Paul says, every person is to submit to the state. And this submission, he says, is to be done without any grudging attitude not to be done in any cynical way, and not to be done in any mechanical way. 
Instead, Paul says we are to be committed to the common good of the people that we live with. We are to participate in the civic life and for the well-being of the people in our community. In other words, Paul is really telling us that we are to be involved. We ought to vote, but we ought to be informed as well. Now, I want you to understand something, because Paul uses a word here that a lot of people don't like. That's that word submit or submissive. I think I mentioned this when we talked about building strong marriages, that I've actually had women tell me they didn't want that word in their marriage vows. To which my reply was, then I'm not sure I want to be a part of your wedding. But let me explain what that word submit means, because it is a good word, if understood correctly. Paul says that we should be submissive. That doesn't mean that we should always think that the government is right. Paul says this even though he says that we should just put our, ourselves under them because that's what God has asked. Paul could say that even though he was imprisoned for two years by a corrupt official who was only waiting for Paul to bribe him to let him out. See, Paul understood something. Paul understood that behind the government is God and that God uses governments even when they don't intend to be used. Someone asked me recently, are you afraid of what might happen if so-and-so or so-and-so were elected in November? And I said, well, while I might not like it, whoever that choice might be, ultimately I know who is still in control. It's still God. And I know that every government, whether they like to think so or not, is still accountable to God. Let me read a little bit more about what Paul says from Romans 13. He said, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Isn't that interesting? Our next president will be placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. But the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. And then interestingly, he gets here to verse 6. He says, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. Isn't that interesting? The climax is talking about paying taxes. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it, that 2,000 years ago, people tried to get out of paying their taxes. I mean, they did not want to pay for the Roman roads. They didn't want to pay for the Roman army. They certainly didn't want to build a Colosseum, and today if they were doing it, they would vote against building a domed Colosseum. They just didn't want to pay their taxes. What about today? How do you as a Christian respond to paying taxes? I find this kind of interesting that a Christian financial advisor by the name of Larry Burkett estimated that 50% of all Christians cheat on their income taxes. That's pretty staggering. That means half of you who pay taxes cheat on your taxes. Now, I don't know where he gets his information, but I have a feeling that he has a fairly good idea, having helped a few people along the way. 
But the Bible says in verse 6, for the same reason you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. And if you want just maybe one practical takeaway, pay your taxes. That's what Paul would say. But I want to share with you today three principles here from, from Romans 13. And the first principle is this. God's purpose of salvation is not to be identified with any one country's well-being. And I'm going to say that again. God's purpose of salvation is not to be identified with any one country's well-being. You know, a lot of nations in this world have this way of thinking that they are somehow God's favorite. And let's, let's be honest, we kind of sometimes think that America is God's favorite nation. But friends, we need to be clear about something. The gospel transcends every country. It transcends every political agenda. It transcends every cause. It transcends every political party. And it stands over them as the sole authoritative judging word of God. And we need to be clear about this as well. The only community that really expresses God's dream for this world is the church. It is not any nation. It is not any culture. It is not any society. When cultures and societies and nations have all gone away, the only thing left will be the church. God says even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The church throughout eternity will always be the cherished object of God's love. Now, St. Augustine was a great Christian thinker, and when Rome had finally fallen, this is what he said. All earthly cities are vulnerable. Men build them, men destroy them. At the same time, there is a city of God that men did not build and cannot destroy, which is everlasting. It is the church. That's why, friends, we as the body of Christ here known as First Lutheran Church need to be reminded of things that will never change no matter what the politics, no matter which political party is in charge. One is that we are in the business of the gospel. We need to remember that. Our clear purpose for existing as a church is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We are in the business of being the church. We're not in the business of doing church, but being the church, being salt and light in our communities. We are in the business of proclaiming in word and deed the good news that is available through the kingdom of God. We are in the business of proclaiming Jesus, our matchless teacher, crucified and risen Lord, and we will not deviate from this, and we will not be distracted from this, and we will not be turned away from this, and we do it with no apologies and no hesitations and no second thoughts. We are the body of Christ. We must be salt and light, and we must share Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson, some of you know, Chuck Colson, someone I've actually been privileged to meet, has some experience in this arena, and I always like what he said. He said, the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. I don't even care whether one candidate is often referred to as the Messiah. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God has come. So the first thing for us to remember is that God's purpose of salvation is never wrapped up in any country's well-being. God's plan for the world, the hope of the world, he uses the body of Christ to carry out the good news of Jesus Christ. I thought about that recently. I saw a bunch of signs that are popping up all around Texarkana that says, what, prayer is our only hope? And I thought to myself, Whatever happened to Jesus? 
Maybe Jesus is our only hope. I don't want to demean those signs. I think that's a really good thing. If you read the Bible passage underneath it, it talks about people turning back to God. That if we turn back to God, he will heal our nation. He'll heal our ways. But as far as our only hope, friends, it's not wrapped up in a candidate. It's not wrapped up in being here in America. It's always wrapped up in the name Jesus. He is the one who's going to see us through. Here's the second thing we need to do. We are to honor our leaders. And there's kind of a corollary to that. And we are to engage in political involvement in the shadow of the cross. Now, I think that's an important point for all of us to remember, that we are to honor our leaders, because I don't think that that's always true. One doesn't need to go very far to look at the newspapers or watch television or listen to the radio to realize uh, that uh, we have pretty much trashed individuals. doesn't make any difference which party. We have ceased to give honor to people. I remember when I first moved to Texarkana about seven months ago, somebody said, there's a few things down in Texas we don't do. We don't badmouth our president. We don't badmouth the military. I thought, that's my kind of people. But I've heard people badmouth our president. And I've heard people badmouth the military. I've heard people badmouth everybody. 1 Peter 2.17 says very clearly, honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. And notice it says, honor the emperor. Honor him. 1 Timothy, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Friends, very simply, honor those people in leadership. Engage in political involvement in the shadow of the cross. With that in mind, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever noticed that people tend to behave badly towards people that they disagree with politically. Have you noticed that? Think for a moment about how we strive to get together and get along with each other here at First Lutheran Church. Our goal must be to treat each other with the same kind of love that God shows towards us. That's why we need to go on record as a church and say very simply, friends, we're not going to gossip about each other. We're not. That's just not part of God's plan for this church or any church. We're not going to listen to half-truths that are told about other people. We're not going to tolerate slanderous statements. We're not going to allow rumors to go unchecked. Because very simply, we know as Christ followers, that's totally unacceptable. Now, for that reason, I don't always understand why people who also call themselves Christians start talking about political figures, whether they be Barack Obama or John McCain or whether it be Joe Biden or Sarah Palin, the kind of talk that they would never engage in inside the walls of a church start pouring out of their mouth. All sorts of slander and deceit and cruelty and sarcasm. It's almost as if people believe that they're only accountable to God within the walls of this church. It's almost as they believe that the only place God lives and spends his time is in this building. My previous church, which was in La Fox, Illinois, and our, the building we built kind of looked like a box, I used to always say, God does not live in a box on La Fox. God does not live in a building at 4600 Texas Boulevard. 
But a lot of people live their lives that way. God is here, so I'm going to be very careful what I say in the presence of God. But when I walk out the front doors and I get to the parking lot, I can say whatever I want because God can't hear me. How foolish and how dangerous. I want you to understand my spirit in saying this. I'm not here to point a finger at anybody because I'm as guilty as anyone else here. It happens to me. Here's how you recognize it. It's when your heart starts going bad on this one, you want to begin to believe bad things about other people. I have that happen to me. I start wanting to, wanting to believe bad things about other people. And I know then I'm drifting away from what God says. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a meeting, and somebody, when they found out that I worked in prison ministry, asked me this question. They said, how can you justify spending so much time in prison dealing with morally bankrupt people? I said, that's what I'm doing right now and talking with you. And guess what? So are you. You're dealing with a morally bankrupt person. Friends, everybody here is morally bankrupt. But we live in the shadow of the cross. And when we live in the shadow of the cross, it is not safe to speak about anything unless we remember that we speak as a morally bankrupt person, a sinner who has been saved solely by the mercy of God. See, the world is not divided into two categories morally bankrupt people and those who agree with me politically. That's not the way it works. The Bible says everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need to engage in political thought and political action always under the shadow of the cross. That's what Luther taught, that we stand under the shadow of the cross. We don't stand under the shadow of a man or an opinion. We are a church that's built on what? Those three solas. Sola gracia, sola fide, sola scriptura. It is by grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. That's where we stand. That's how we need to approach our lives. Here's the point I want to make. When people make it sound like there's only one Christian opinion on an issue and that it's a case of good guys against bad guys, they're not doing any favor to the cause of Christ. It's not really us against them. There's a third point I want to make today, and that's that our political attitudes and our political involvement must reflect the whole counsel of God. Let me give you an example or two. It needs to reflect the whole counsel of God. Maybe some of you can help me understand this because I don't. I've wondered why is it that those people who express the most concern about terrorism and the war in Iraq often say so very little about what they're going to do for babies that are born in the ghetto or in the barrio who stand a better chance of going to prison than to college. Or I wonder why is it that those people who express such a passionate concern for equality amongst men and among women are least likely to be concerned about the tragedy of a million and a half abortions that take place year after year after year. I don't know what your Bible says, although I'd suggest you read it and see what it says. But if you go through the Bible, you're going to find the three social categories that are repeated most often. It is the orphan, it is the widow, and it is the alien. That's what the Bible talks about, taking care of these people. And it is patented clear to me that if you study the Bible carefully, that we will be judged by God for our treatment of what we might call 
the marginalized people, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens. James says something in chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled in the eyes of God the Father is this, take care of the widows, take care of the orphans, and remain unstained by the world. So friends, when you walk into the voting booth, you need to consider some things as Christians. As a Christian, you need to have the heart of compassion for poor people. As Christians, we do need to be concerned about the sanctity of life. That includes those people who are not yet born. It is God that brings about life. It's God that supports life. It is God that chooses when life ends. Christians ought to be leading the way on environmental issues. After all, this is the Father's world that you and I live in. We are to be good stewards of it. In Christ, all things were created, the Bible says. He made it, he gave it to us, and he said, now, you take care of it. Christians ought to be concerned with peacemaking in the world. After all, doesn't the Bible say, blessed are the peacemakers? I mean, who will work for peace if it's not the people in the church? I'm talking about true peace and lasting peace. How are we going to have moral credibility to make peace if we are not peaceful in our own families or in our own churches? Christians, more than anybody, ought to be concerned with racial alienation. Paul says that Jesus died to tear down that great wall of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles, that great ethnic chasm of his day. Friends, if we are followers of Jesus, not to be involved in tearing down the walls is to make null and void the very crucifixion of Jesus. Christians ought to be concerned with education and what our children are being taught, and what they are, are being uh, led to learn. We ought to be concerned for a kind of society that values the family, traditional families. Remember, I've said this before, God created Adam and Eve. He did not create Adam and Steve. We need to be concerned and promote the families and marriages that promote the kind of value system that build character that enable people to be Christ followers, to be salt and light in this world. Now again, be aware that there will be differences between well-intended believers about how these values and how these goals are to be believed. We need to handle those differences in Christ-honoring ways. I think it was St. Augustine who said, you know, that in the essentials we need to have unity. And friends, as Christians, we need to understand what the essentials are, and they're within the pages of this book. I said this this morning in Bible class that, you know, on our website, you can read this, there are eight or nine or ten core beliefs that we hold to be true as a congregation. These are essential for us. These are part of our faith. This is part of what, you know, enables us to call ourselves Christians, a belief in God's Word, the belief in the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the belief in what God has done for us and what Jesus has done for us. And, what the Holy Spirit, is, what he's done for us, and that Jesus is going to come back. Those are the essentials of the faith that we need to have unity on that. We will never be budged off of them. But we also understand that there are some non-essentials, and those things, certainly, we may have differences of opinion. I mean, I gave kind of a silly one this morning. My Nebraska Cornhuskers beat the Baylor Bears yesterday. I know that that rankles Tommy a little bit, being a Baylor boy. You know, not everybody can be right like a cornhusker, right, Tommy? No, I'm just kidding you. But we can, we can, we can disagree on that. 
but it doesn't change the fact that we're going to love one another because that's one of the essential things that we are called to love one another. But in everything we do, we need to exhibit some charity. We need to handle differences of opinion in Christ-honoring ways. And may God help us do that because we're citizens of an earthly kingdom, but our real citizenship is in another kingdom. That means we get to live our earthly citizenship passionately and in informed, involved ways in the light of the whole gospel. As I'll say it again, we must live our lives under the shadow of the cross as grace-filled, humble people who don't have all the answers. We've got to live it in the realization that the hope of the, the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ and through his bride, the church. Let me give you three B's in closing. When it comes to most anything in life, be informed, be involved, and be in prayer. You can apply that to just about any aspect of life. And when it comes to entering into the polling booths in a couple of weeks, be informed. Do people exhibit biblical world values that you're voting for? Are what they stand for, is it consistent with God's word? Be informed. Be involved. Read the papers. Get to know the people. Be an active participant in the government in our country, but mostly be in prayer. Be in prayer that God's people will continue to stand up for what is right, to take the hard right, if you will, against the easy wrongs, to be people who are founded on the word, who live the word, and are salt and light in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this country, first of all. What a privilege it is to live in a in a country where we are able to vote, where we're able to express our opinions. We just pray, Father, that uh, as this next election comes up, that we not have any fear because we know that ultimately you are in charge. Father, you have shown us that uh, you are involved in government and, and uh, you've made it pretty clear that we should be as well. But as we get involved, we, we need to approach this from having a biblical worldview that we need to know what it is that you have said about things. And Lord, I just pray that we, we vote uh, for a biblical worldview from our Christian command from Jesus to be salt and light in this world. Lord, help us also to evaluate individual issues from a scriptural point of view. Lord, your word is the final evaluation of truth. But in the end, Father, we know that... Uh, no matter what, you're going to be in charge. You're the one that's ultimately in control. Whatever happens, you will be there the next day because the Bible says so. And after all, it's all about the truth of the Scripture in the end. Lord, be with us in our country. In Jesus' name, amen.